All right, let's take our Bible and turn to the 40th Psalm, Psalm 40. Psalm number 40. Last, uh, last night, or yesterday, before the fellowship, I was talking to Pastor Stewart, and he was telling me about his voice, and, or about his uh, throat, and he was saying, well, it's a little scratchy, so hopefully it'll be okay tomorrow. And, of course, we know it didn't turn out that way, but um, I told him, I said, well, if I, if I end up having to cover for you, it'll definitely be out of Revelation uh, Revelation chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, because that's what I was teaching in Sunday school. And, um, so, but I lied to him because we're in Psalm 40, as you can see. So we're going to look at Psalm 40, verses 1 through number, verse number 5. All right, let's read verses 1 through 5 together. I'll read the, um, the subtitle of the psalm, and then I'll read verses 1 through 5. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward, and thy thoughts which are to usward, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. All right, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your church here that is gathered together uh, on this appointed day. Lord, I pray that this uh, Sunday morning would not just be another Sunday morning that we, uh, as we so often have a tendency to do, to just file in and, and uh, not engage. I pray that this Sunday would be a Sunday whereby we would truly meet with you and that you would speak to our hearts. And uh, not just this Sunday, but each and every time we come to, the, to, the, uh, to fellowship and to worship together, that it would be a time of, that our hearts would be prepared, ready to hear, and that we would take heed in the way in which we come uh, to gather together to worship. Lord, thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for every person that's listening. Thank you for the Word of God that we have uh, we have the truth. You said, thy word is truth. And Lord, as we look at your word, would you please guide us and teach us, instruct us. Lord, if there's some among us that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that your spirit would reprove and your spirit would prick the conscience of, uh, of those people. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to get a clear glimpse of not only uh, who you are, but also what you have done. And Lord, I admit that I have no ability to help your people except by the grace and, uh, and the work of the Spirit of God that you give. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. We entrust it to you. We ask you to speak to us as we look in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm 40 is, of course, a psalm of David. And this psalm, in its, in its proper context, that is, in the way it's uh, you know, intended and originally written, is a psalm in which David is, of course, David had many uh, difficulties in his life prior to becoming and after becoming king, but especially before he became king. David was, was hunted, was hunted. It's the equivalent of being hunted by the FBI, uh, if you think about it. David was hunted by the, the government of his day, by King Saul, and as a, as a criminal, though David was, was totally and completely innocent of the crimes that he was accused of, and so we can understand how, that David, how often in the Psalms and in other places in 1 and 2 Samuel, how David is uh, fearful, fearful of his life. He, his life is very steps. He said, I am but, in one place he said, I am but one step away from death and me, or just one step away. 
And so David had many times where he could, he could write this psalm, and this is one of those examples, how that he, he talks about how that God waited patiently. Uh, he waited patiently for the Lord and that God helped him. And David found himself, as I said, in a number of times when he was in uh, very difficult circumstances and he needed God's deliverance. And that's what he's writing about. But really what I want to discuss uh, and, and talk about this morning is kind of an application of that. And of course, we know if you've been in this church very long or you, you were here when Pastor Craig was here, you'll know that this was his, uh, his life verse, his life passage. And you, he would often quote this verse in his uh, messages and such. And that's kind of the way I want to take it this morning because the reality is that the way that God interacts and the way that God relates to us and the way that God gives us salvation is really common, whether it be salvation as it relates to things physical and earthly or salvation as it relates to our soul. There's, some comp, there's a lot of common factors that, uh, that come into play. For instance, uh, the, the fact of faith is something that is, you know, this is, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so God often, you see that, that, that fact, that theme of faith come up any time that the deliverance of the Lord is found, and this will be no different. Um, but what's important in this psalm, and something we need to kind of keep in mind as we go through a few of the verses here, is that this is a psalm of what God has done, right? So many times, so many times, we describe our salvation as what we do. And we've talked about this before. I know Brother David has mentioned this in different times. He's given testimonies and, and uh, brought the message on, on uh, like Wednesday nights and things when, when Pastor Stewart would ask him to do that. And, and, you know, we do often describe salvation when, when we get saved as something we have done. But when you read this, when you read this, what did David do? What did David do? Well, in verse 1, he waited. And in verse 1, he cried. You know, that's for all the things, the, the kind of transitive verbs for you, for you uh, English geeks, for all the, those active kind of things that we can do, those actions that we can do, that's, that's about as minimal as it gets. In other words, that is more of a non-action than it is an action. It's waiting on the Lord and crying out for help. So really, verses 1 down through verse number 5 is a really clear description of what God does for a person who's in distress. And you know what? The book of Jonah says it. The New Testament gives it. It may, might not say it in the exact words as Jonah does, but when the Bible says, "...salvation is of the Lord." When, when the Bible says that Jesus is the author and finisher, that means he starts it and he completes it. It is his work. We are recipients. We are not actors. We are recipients in this work. And so this is a description of what God does. And we'll see that more clearly in just a minute. But when we look at this um, and, and we apply it to our own salvation, you have this kind of, retrospective look. In other words, David is looking backward at what God has done for him. And oftentimes when I know I know when I got saved, the 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 day I got saved, it was in the, it was in the middle of the night, you know, it was like 12:30 in the morning on the 4th of August 1999 and you know, I remember the moment that I received Christ, I remember uh, the uh, I remember what happened right after that and the effect upon my life. But in that following week, you know, things w became less clear, a little less clear than they were that, that, that very moment when I trusted in, in, in Christ. As the Lord began to work in my heart. In other words, we get saved and it, it, the Lord does amazing things in our lives. And, but, but, but then we have to kind of go back to real life. And when we go back to real life, we kind of got to get into a, a, a new routine. We'll see that in a minute as well. But we get into a new routine, and it kind of becomes a little bit humdrum. So we have, to, we have to reflect on what God has done for us. And sometimes when you're in the moment, 
You don't really fully understand what the magnitude of what God has done. Sometimes you got to go get, get a, little, a, a little ways down the line. You learn a little bit. The Lord uh, hones and the Lord uh, instructs you and he teaches you about yourself and he teaches you about himself. And he does that. And, and in that new perspective, we look back at what he's done and we, we think, wow, all that happened at that moment. It didn't seem like it, but it did. You see, the Lord gives us that new perspective, that retrospective look to look back at what he's done. And that's what David is doing here. Now, I want to make something clear on the outset before we start looking at the verses in detail is this. What is being described here as it applies to our personal salvation from sin? What's being described here is the moment that the Lord saves the sinner. Okay? But I want to say very clearly to begin with that there is no salvation without what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. Right? That is the very basis. There is no rescuing. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. There's no pardon. There's no salvation without that cross. That's why the Bible says we are saved by the blood of Christ. That does not mean, however, that Jesus dying upon the cross for our sins means that we are saved. If that was the case, then the fact that Jesus died for every man, He tasted death for every man, would mean that all men are saved regardless of their faith. No, the Lord did that. He paid for salvation. He paid the redemption price. He is the one that made our salvation possible. He is the one that provided it from start to finish. And then it is, it is upon us. He commands us to receive that salvation. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus died upon the cross, was buried and rose from the dead, He died for sinners. He died for all sinners. And what that does is that shows that all sinners, no matter how wicked, no matter their station in life, no matter their ethnic origin, no matter, no, no without, any, without any consideration of that person at all, we could say that person, whoever they are, can believe unto eternal life, can be one of God's children, can be forgiven of sin. Why? Because Jesus took their sin upon himself, bled and died in their place. Every person, no matter who they are, that is the basis. But the fact that Jesus died did not, does not mean that they are automatically saved. There is a moment in which the Lord, the God's salvation is personalized to us when we receive it. And that's what's being described here. Now, even though that's the case, in this passage you see hints of what the Lord has done for sinners. You see that. And we'll look at that in a minute. But what we're describing here is the moment in which that the man who is in distress calls upon the Lord. That moment in which a man who is in danger and in peril receives the salvation and is, is uh, saved. And so that's what we're looking at. So that, I just want to make that clear to start, which is the Lord, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? That's, that's part one. That's 2,000 years ago. That's done. Regardless of what we do, that is done. That is a done deal. That is a finished Work. Salvation is now free to everyone. All right? John 3.16, second part of the verse says, that whosoever believeth in him. You see that? That's, the, that's what we're reading here. That's the second part. That's, our, that's the application of that salvation to us as an individual when we are actually forgiven. And that's what the Scriptures teach. So let's look at verse number one. Verse number one says this. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. Now notice that. Waited patiently for the Lord. 
Hold your place here and go to the book of Isaiah, if you would, to the right, in the right-hand side from where you are, to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 55. Look at a couple verses that relate to this. Isaiah 55, and look down at verse number 6. Look what it says. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Notice that in verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. You know what that tells us? Now think about it. Remember what the psalmist, what David says in Psalm 40 verse 1. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. The Lord was not waiting on us. Now you could say, and I wouldn't argue with you, you could say there's a facet. Because God calls all of us to repent and all of us to trust in Christ, you could say, and again, I wouldn't argue, that the Lord is waiting on us to believe in Christ. You could say that. But there's another aspect to this in which salvation is God's prerogative, right? Where God wants us to be saved, but it's on His terms. And He comes by us. Remember, we're not talking about when Jesus died on the cross. We know that's done. That's finished. But the moment when we receive that, the moment when that becomes our reality, when we are forgiven individually by the Lord, at this moment, this is a time when the Lord comes to us. We wait on Him. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. And this is the danger... Listen now, this is the danger of delaying and putting off what should be done now. The danger of taking your own soul that is the most precious and valuable thing that you have, it's the eternal, and, and risking it by saying, I don't want to do that right now, and not answering the door when the Lord is knocking because there is no guarantee that God is going to continue to knock. See, we have this idea, again, going back to what I said earlier, that we have this idea that salvation is something we do. And so we figure we can come to God just any old time that we please, and God has to, has to do whatever we say. And it's just not that way. It's just not that way. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you, before you trusted in Christ, before you became a believer, how many of you did turn the Lord away? He was knocking and you knew it. I did. And the Lord is just full of mercy. But He was under, we should not deceive ourselves to think that He's under some obligation to wait at our beckoning call. No. Back in the Psalms, he says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. <laughs> in other words, he was crying out to God. He was crying out to God. He wanted God to save him, but he knew the salvation was coming from God. He knew he couldn't just snap his fingers. God's going to just snap to attention and do what he says. Oh, no. You see, the Lord is gracious, but we must not presume upon His grace and think that we can mistreat His calls to us. And the truth is, every person that comes to Christ, every person that believes unto salvation and is born again, does so because God calls them. That's what the Bible says, right? He called you by our gospel. That's what the New Testament says, right? They hear the gospel, and at that moment... That gospel, you have these two things come together. You have the cross, John 3, 16a, 
God gave His only begotten Son. And then you have the cross combined with this salvation event in our life. And they come together at that moment. But you see, we should not presume upon that. When God is calling us, when God speaks to us, we must respond. We must respond. I waited patiently for the Lord back in Psalm 40, and He inclined unto me. The word incline, it's a blessing because that means God leaned over. You know what's an amazing thing? I, and I, I know I, I sometimes when I have the opportunity to speak here, I, I mention this, and I just, I just can't help it, okay? I just can't help it. It is an amazing fact to me that God is inclined to us. In other, in other words, it is God's disposition toward us. It is His default disposition toward us to help, to show mercy. He is a God of love and kindness. He hears us when we cry. Just like when our, when our, own, when our own children... So how many of you have, ever, have you ever, ever been at home and just minding your own business and then all of a sudden one of your children screams out? What do you do? What do you do? I'll tell you, it's different than if you're just kind of walking down the street and you hear a commotion, maybe a child or whatever, and, and you, you can tell immediately when you hear that commotion, you hear that child scream that it's not your child. And what do you do? Well, it gets your attention, but you're not inclined. You know what I do? You, you ask my kids? Well, they might not know, but my wife knows. She does the same thing. Anytime there's a scream in my house, I run. No, I do. Like, it's, it's a default reaction. It, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, it's something I do instinctively. I just, I hear it and I run to my kids. Why? Because my heart is inclined to those kids. I love those kids. I want to help them. That's where my heart is. And that's what the Bible says here, that God is inclined to us. He loves us. And you know what? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You all know this and can quote it. But listen to it. Just If you want, close your eyes and listen to it, because I'm going to read it. This new Bible, all the pages stick together still. Romans 5, verse 8. Verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But look at this. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? That means there was no cause that God should love us. There was no reason for Christ to die for us and us. There was no good that we had done. Jesus did not die for good people. He didn't die for us. He did not die in our place because we provided some benefit to him. He did it because he was inclined to us, right? He leaned our way. And it says, but God commendeth. That means demonstrated demonstrated his love toward us. You see that? This is God's disposition toward us. Now, compare that. He says, God inclined unto me. Now compare that to our inclination. Is our inclination toward God? No. Our natural inclination is not toward God. We are naturally averse to him. We're naturally flee from him. And, and you don't have to go very far for proof of that. If you're honest, you would have to admit that that's the case with you. And for people that, don't, that do not know the Lord, and I know because I see it on their face. I see it. You bring up the Lord to, to, to people that do not know him, and the disgust, the aversion is written all over their face. And that is just, that's human nature. Men are inclined to flee from God, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They heard the voice of the Lord after they had sinned, after their conscience was defiled, after they were found guilty. They did what God forbid and thus became sinners. And then the voice of the Lord came walking in the garden. And what does the Bible say? They fled from the Lord. And that is the inclination of everyone 
on this, on this planet. That's the inclination. We are not naturally inclined to God like God is to us. And so what does that tell us? If we are not naturally inclined to God, but He is naturally inclined to us, that means if, if, that, if it wasn't true that God was inclined to us, there would be no hope for us whatsoever. If God did not seek us out, there we would not be found ever because we're not looking for Him. We would be utterly without hope. Verse 1 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. The cry. Of course, we know Romans... Again, I go back to, the, to, to reiterate the truth of when Jesus died upon the cross, paid for our salvation. But for that to become true for us, that is, it's true, but for that to become applied to us and our personal forgiveness, we must receive Christ. But as many as received Him, John chapter 1, right? To them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that what? Believe on His name. That goes back to John chapter 3, verse 16, what I just said, right? So in order for that to be applied to our forgiveness and for us to be forgiven as an individual, which is what we're reading about here, there's the mention of the cry. Romans chapter 10. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what this is? That, if you read Romans 10, what you find is that cry does not stand alone. This is why, and I don't hesitate to say this, this is why it is so dangerous to give someone the impression that if they say magic words, they're saved. This is why it is so dangerous. This cry is not magic words. Oh, you want to be saved? Listen, I've been in churches like that. My wife has been in churches like that even more than I have. You all have been in churches like that. Our church is not like that, thank the Lord. Where someone comes forward inquiring about salvation and and someone in the church tells them, it's okay, all you have to do is pray this prayer. That's not what this is right here. You know what this is? This is a cry out of desperation and peril. This is a man crying out from his heart to God. You know what? Within and and, and kind of wound up and woven into this cry is faith. That's what Romans chapter 10 comes into play because it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what does the next verse say? What does the next verse say? How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You see that? So this cry is a cry of faith, is a cry of desperation, is a cry of peril. The cry in Romans chapter 10, the call in Romans 10, verse 13, is also a cry of desperation and peril and faith. Faith, so it goes like this. We hear the gospel preached... We believe the gospel preached and our response in faith is to call out to the God who hears the cries of those in danger. See, because he's inclined. He doesn't have a deaf ear. He's inclined to us. And so when David cried out to God, God came to his rescue. And when we cry out to God for our, for our need to be forgiven, for our need to be saved, It's a cry of faith. It's a cry of desperation. It's a cry of peril. Again, (laughs) I laugh because it is so just patently ridiculous, the idea of telling someone that there's a magic prayer they pray and that saves them. That is not scriptural. You see, when Pat, you know, the other several, how long has it been? A couple months ago, I guess, when Patrick came down and said, he had some spiritual needs, and I had a chance to talk to him. And we discussed, you can ask him after, we discussed the gospel, 
We just discussed sin. We talked about the Ten Commandments. We talked about what it meant to be a sinner. And we talked about the danger of not being forgiven, the danger of being uh, dying in one's sin. We talked about that. We talked about how Jesus died for him. And again, John 3.16a, right? And then we talked about John 3.16b, where, where we must receive that salvation individually, all right? We talked about it. You know what? If you ask Patrick, I didn't say, all right, Patrick, all you do is say these words. No, Pat, it was interesting because Patrick took my hands like this. He took my hands and kind of pulled me close to him and he bowed his head and talked to God himself and spoke out of his heart to the Lord. You see that? Listen, this is not hard. I know I spent a lot of time explaining it, but this is, this is as simple as can be. We are the ones that complicate it with our formulas and programs. And you know what? When a person, and we're gonna, I'm going to see it in just a minute. When a person really comes to the point where they realize where they are, this is what they do. The problem is they never get to verse 2. That's the problem. They never realize they're in verse 2. They start in verse 1. They never realize where they are. But when they realize they're in verse 2, you know what they do? They start doing verse 1. That's what happens. And the call upon the Lord in faith is natural. Right? You know, when I got saved and you got saved, no, I mean, nobody told me what to say. I was by myself. I mean, and besides, if I had said words differently, would it have been as effective? Yes. Right? Because it wasn't the words. It was the heart calling out to God. Some people, some people receive Christ and call upon Him in faith without words spoken with the lips at all. Again, that's why, that's why I said at the beginning, there are two things the psalmist does. He waits and he cries. That's it. The Lord did everything else. And really, that's not really much to speak of. All right, look at verse number two. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. Look at that. This is the psalmist in retrospect looking back at where he was. Now, he might not have understood that at the time, how, how close he was to perishing. He might not have understood that. But as we apply that, look at that horrible pit. Horrible pit. You think of, I think of Joseph. Think of the pit, I think of Joseph. Or even you could think of maybe Jeremiah. How many of you remember Jeremiah? They, they lowered him down into a pit. And at the bottom, there was miry clay. You remember that? There was, so it was actually both. But you have this, that the idea with Joseph is, Joseph's brothers took him and threw him in a pit. What is a pit? A pit is a, is a hole in the ground. This is not, a, this is not your standard run-of-the-mill hole in the ground that you might step into like we have back here that has broken, almost broken many an ankle. <laughs> Those of you can give me a nod that have stepped in said hole. This is not that. A pit is a large hole with smooth sides. It's deep. There's nothing in it. You look up and you just see, this, you just see the sky. There is no hope of getting out of, of, of a place like this. In fact, that's, that's one reason they were made. Right? They took Joseph and his, Joseph's brothers took Joseph and they threw him into a pit and left him for dead because that's exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to kill him. He was thrown there to die. No water, impossible to escape. Here's the thing I want you to understand about this, this mention of the horrible pit. This is a hopeless situation. There is no escape. There is no hope. There is no reason to hope. When somebody throws you in, in the scripture, when the Bible says somebody's thrown into a pit, that is abandonment. This is where every sinner stands. This, no, no. This is where every son and daughter of Adam stands without God. The Bible says we were... In, in Ephesians, it says we were without hope and without God in the world. 
That's why it's described as a pit. No escape. You can't pull yourself out. You will perish there. Listen, if you, please, please listen to me. If you are not born again and you have not truly received Christ, and there's evidence of that shown in, in just a minute, you are in a hopeless situation. And the end is certain death. You will not be able to get out of this pit. No matter the amount of effort, you might survive there a long time. But eventually, eventually, death will find you. You see, this is a serious, a serious place to be in. You can see why the psalmist was crying out to God. But spiritually speaking, this is where the sons of Adam are. Every person born into this world, this is where we are. And then it mentions the miry clay. Kind of a different picture, although they're related. As we saw, as I mentioned with Jeremiah, there was miry clay in the bottom of his pit. That's double trouble. But miry clay, what is that? That is simply water mixed with dirt. That's all it is. But this is not simply, and, and, and here's the thing. Most people, when they think of themselves kind of in their moral, you know, their kind of moral state, you might call it, their spiritual state, most people will acknowledge, you know, I, you know yeah, I've done wrong. I've made mistakes. They love that. I've made, made mistakes. You know, a mistake and a sin is different. A mistake is when you're playing hopscotch and you, and you jump in the wrong square. A mistake is when you cut yourself shaving. A sin is when you intentionally violate God's law. And that is a crime in the sight of God. That is serious. That is not a mistake. See, most people view themselves as simply that they just, they make mistakes, kind of like stepping in, in a muddy spot. Maybe, maybe they, they didn't think was really there. They weren't quite aware of. And, oh, man, they step in something. Oh, I got this mud all over. It's going to get on my pants. And, oh, man. And they try to find a place to wipe. That's the way pe most people view sin and their interaction with sin. It's just kind of like stepping in a muddy spot. This is not that. This is a man sinking down into mud that's going to take his life and he cannot get out, right? Look at a few verses with me in the Psalms. Look at Psalm number 69. Verse number two. Psalm 69 verse two says this. I sink in deep mire. Look what it says. Where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. Look at verse 14. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not, what? Sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Look at Jeremiah, if you would. Hold your place in Psalm 40 and look at Jeremiah chapter 36, uh, 38. I'm sorry. Jeremiah chapter 38. I mentioned this earlier, but let's read it. Jeremiah 38, verse 6 says this. Then, they, then took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of, of Malchiah, the son of Hamalek, that was in the court of the prison. And they let down Jeremiah with cords. No, that tells you something. Look, if they let the man down with cords, number one, that means the pit was deep. Otherwise, they would have just thrown him. But they didn't want to throw him because they wanted to torture him. They had to let him down. It'd be like throwing somebody, you know, two stories down. You just don't do that. You really want him to suffer? You let him down easy and then let him die there with no water. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah, what's the next word? Sunk in the mire. Three times the word mire and sunk come together. Look at verse 22. 
And behold, all the women that are left in the king of Judah's house shall be brought forth to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women shall say, Thy friends have set, uh, set thee on and have prevailed against thee. Thy feet are sunk in the mire, and they are turned away back. Note the reference to sinking. Now, here's the thing I want you to see as we prepare to go to the next verse. When you think of the mire, you think of the feet, the legs, right? They get stuck in filth and dirt, but this is deep dirt. This is mire you can't get out of, kind of like the pit. It's a hopeless situation. But because it's the feet, it's a reference to the feet. In the scripture, the feet always reflect the works, right? the path that someone might, might walk. And so what you have is you have this real vivid picture of a man whose life is characterized by sin. And what the sin does is it, is it he, he steps in it and then he sinks down into it and the sin just grabs a hold and suck, the suction just sucks him down into the dirt, into the mire further and further. And f- listen, listen to me, please, listen to me. We play in sin. I'm, talk, I'm talking to the people that, that, that might not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We play in sin. We dabble in it because it's fun. But what it does is it sucks us down. And it will suck us down to hell. It will suck us down to the lake of fire. We think we can come out any old time we want. We think it's not going to have an effect on us. And what it does is it deceives us. It tricks us. And before we know it, our leg is in the mire too far. The mud has gotten us and we cannot lift ourselves out anymore. And that's not all. It continues to pull us down. That's the problem. Listen to me. That's the problem with sin and evil. Is that you think it's not a big deal, but it is. And you think it's not going to have an effect on you, but it will. And you think you can step out of it any time, and you can't. You think it's fun, but the end of this is not fun. I'm telling you, the end of this is not fun. Not only will it destroy your life, it'll take your soul. Because it pulls you down. And before you know it, about the time that you realize, well, you know what? I really don't want to be here anymore. It's too late. But again, just like with the pit, there is no hope. That's what he's describing, a hopeless situation. He needs a Savior, right? He doesn't need instruction. He needs a Savior. He needs the hand of a strong one to lift him out. That is not 50-50. That is 100%. Zero. I give zero. God gives 100. That's this description here. And this is a description of a man without God. His works are evil. That's the feet. He finds no way to fix them. How many people have said, I'm not going to do that anymore because they see the destruction that sin brings in their life. That's that, that's that mire on the legs, right? It's, it's destructive to the life. We say, we resolve. I am never going to do this. We vow. I'm never going to do it again. But then we find no power over it at all. It has total power and control over us. And so we sink further. So you have the horrible pit, the miry clay. Now listen to me, please. This is the place and position and description of people who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't care what you profess. You can tell me all day long that you, you prayed the prayer and you're, you know, you're a Christian, whatever. You say all day long. Listen, you saying it doesn't make it so. God knows those that are His. That's what the Bible says. The question is not, do you claim to be a believer? The question is, does God know you? Right? Now here's the problem though. Even though this is a description of people who do not know the Lord, 
This is also a description that people are loath to admit that they're a position that they're in. Nobody likes to admit that they are hopeless and helpless. Through pride, they convince themselves that they are not in peril such as this. That's the thing. And this is where the real, the crux of the matter is. Because God says, listen, God says, you are in danger. God says, you can't get out. You're hopeless. You need a Savior. And we convince ourselves otherwise. And we say, oh, it's not that bad. I'm not that bad. I this, I that. We tell ourselves these things. And we never, ever come to the, to the, to the, take the bitter pill of realizing, recognizing, and admitting that we are dirty and defiled. You know what? Our life proves it. Talk about the legs being stuck in the mire. You say, here's, the, here's what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. You want to know why people have such dirty a dirty walk, why they love sin so much. You know why? Because they're in the mire. It's that simple. And so we can say all that we want about, well, I'm not really this, not really that. But the reality is your life proves it. Your life proves what you are. That's what this verse is. Now, our good works don't save us, but our life will prove what we are. That's what 1 John 3, 7 is saying. But listen, many people just don't want to, they don't want to admit that they're in this place, a horrible pit of miry, in the miry clay, that they're hopeless. They don't want to. The pride. Everybody wants to contribute something to their salvation, even if it's something little. Because a human being will contribute 1% and then rave about 1% until the day they die. That's the way it works. Now look at verse 3. To the man who finally is willing to admit, yes, I am totally, totally hopeless and helpless without God's salvation. He must save me or I'll not be saved. And I can't contribute anything to it. To that man... That person is the person who does verse 1. He waits and he cries out to God in the cry of faith. And you know what? Because God is inclined, God comes running. Look what he says in verse 3, or verse 2. He says, He set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Now, com- contrast that with where the feet were in the first part of the verse. The feet were in the miry clay. But notice that has been changed. Talking about the, the way we live, our walk is different. Before it was in the muck and in the mire. Now it's on the rock. Not only that, but the Bible says God, God established his goings. In other words, the way the man lived was different. He didn't, God set him up onto the the rock so that he could jump right back into the muck. No, God set him up onto the rock so his life would be different. It would be characterized differently. And this is just, listen, this is just the reality. The reality is that the life shows where you're at. This man, after God delivered him, God put him on the rock. God established his goings. And so you know what? His goings were different. The way he lived was different. It was different. Don't tell me. Don't try to convince me or anyone else that, that you have been born again and, you're, and God has forgiven you of your sin and put the Spirit of God in you and given you eternal life if your life is just the same as it ever was. Your word, if that's the case, your way has not been established. Your goings have not been established by God because he, he pulls you out of the muck to change the way you live. And so he says, little children, let no man deceive you. 
He that doeth righteousness is righteous. You see that? The righteousness doesn't save you, but it is an evidence. Now as we close, verse 4. Blessed is the man that maketh, or verse 3. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. You see, if your ways are not different, if my ways are not different, if my song is not different, what I'm singing about, what make, gives me joy, then how is anyone going to be affected by it? Because they see it and fear and trust in the Lord. That's the effect. The difference is what causes them to be affected. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside the lies. Verse 5, and this is John 3, 16a. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wondrous, wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. The works of God. Simply this. God was inclined to us. God loved you even though you were a sinner, even though you were a lawbreaker, even though you were guilty. God loved you before you were born in full knowledge of what you would be. And He sent His Son to be your Savior, to die on the cross in your place, to die as a sinner for you. He was buried and He rose again the third day. And I say, many are the wonderful works, O Lord, which Thou hast done. And then we come to that point where we realize we're in that miry clay and we call out to him because we realize we, the only hope we have is if God saves us 100%. And we call out to him and we say, many, O Lord, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done. So, all right, if you would go ahead and come, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever come to the conclusion, have you ever realized that your feet are in miry clay, that your feet, you, you are in a horrible pit, that you are in danger of losing your soul. Have you ever come to that conclusion? Have you realized that? You know what? If you have and you called on the Lord and God pulled you out and He gave you a new song and established your goings and your feet are on a new path, listen, what is the psalmist doing? He's just saying, thank you, Lord. Many are the wonderful works which thou hast done. Let's pray together.